Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd like to invite you to fast forward in your mind to the first Saturday in May. Uh, let's have beautiful weather just like it is today. And it's about 6.20 in the afternoon. This is the race that we've been waiting for, not just all day, but all year, because it's the Kentucky Derby. It's the first crown of the triple, first jewel in the triple crown. And at this moment, you can feel the excitement in the air because all dreams are still alive for the triple crown. So it's 6.20 in the afternoon. Ladies, you'd be in a nice derby hat and a nice dress. Guys, you'd be in a dapper uh, derby tie, maybe a bourbon-laced cigar. Uh, and uh, let's pretend that we're going to light uh, that cigar with a $100 bill when your horse comes in, all right? <laughs> and uh, this is the moment every year that gets me, uh, gives me goosebumps. And it's when my, uh, the U of L band plays my old Kentucky home. And when 160 or 70,000 people start to sing my old Kentucky home, the sound just rises out from beneath the spires and it's just amazing. And I always tell people after about six or seven mint juleps, everybody knows the words to my old Kentucky home. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but, and I assume since it's uh, 1045 in the morning, you guys probably haven't had mint juleps yet, but uh, feel free to sing along if you like. And uh, here's my old Kentucky home.
excuse me for a little bit. <laughs> Get myself composed. Great, thank you, Steve, very much. Um, as you know, uh, as Steve talked about, we had a Triple Crown winner in American Pharaoh this year, and it got me thinking a little bit about how, how long and grueling that, that activity really is to go through that. Uh, and so I just think it's really appropriate that that, that that American Pharaoh started that journey with that sound you just heard. That that's what put, put them out on the, on the beginning of the Triple Crown. So how fitting is it for us, right, uh, to have been played called to the post as we stand ready to explore the possibilities that lie before us at the conference. Uh, and I can't think of a more appropriate place for us to explore possibilities than right here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, city leaders actively support the arts and cultural organizations, as you will see tonight at the block party, because you will all be there. Um, because they encourage the creativity and ingenuity in our organizations that help us to better serve our communities. Uh, so with that, I would like to introduce Mary Ellen Wiederwall. Uh, Mary Ellen worked in public affairs in both public and private sectors, holding senior positions in the legislative and executive branches of Kentucky state government. She's currently on the board of the Louisville Orchestra, uh, where she serves on their executive committee and is on the board of Leadership Louisville. She's the past president of Junior League of Louisville. Uh, Mayor Greg Fisher appointed, uh, had her, appointed her to the administration in uh, 2012 as her deputy chief of staff and chief of strategic initiatives. And in her current role in metro government, uh, she's leading Louisville forward, an integrated approach to economic and community development. Please welcome Mary Ellen Wiederwall. Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> yes. Everybody's awake now. We've had a call to the post. We've sung. Everything is, is great. And behalf, on behalf of Mayor Fisher and the city of Louisville, welcome to Louisville, where we have a rich history and a bright future. Uh, I wish I could stay with you throughout this conference. You have such a wonderful agenda and, and a great speaker ahead. So I will be brief uh, in my remarks. But I understand that you have been out enjoying a lot of our historical assets. How many of you, this is your first trip to Louisville? Oh, great. How many of you are coming back? Yes. <laughs> we are very proud, of course, of our city, and, and I'm a hometown girl. Uh, despite the interesting last name, Viterbol, uh, I am an eighth-generation Kentuckian on my mother's side, and I'm a daughter of the American Revolution, and my father is an immigrant to this country. And I am so fortunate to know my family history on both sides, but not everybody is. Uh, and for those who, who haven't enjoyed the history passed down the way I have, we have wonderful resources like what you all do every day to make sure you either know your family history or you have wonderful historical places to visit uh, to learn about our history because, as is often said, if we do not know our past, we are doomed to repeat it. And if uh, you can't learn from history, then you can't plan for a great future. So we're very proud to have you here in Louisville. As you know, we were a city founded on the banks of the Ohio here. Our boats came down the river and had to stop and uh, take out here an area of portage, and uh, that was how we got started. So we went from a river port in the 1770s and 1780s, uh, today a world port where we are sending goods and services around the world from Louisville. And so we have a rich history rooted in trade and goods with a heavy dose of bourbon. You all been experiencing bourbon? Yes. Uh, Evan Williams, who now has a distillery on Main Street, was one of our founding distilleries here in the city. 
and uh, marketed his first whiskey in 1780. The city was founded in 1778, and now, of course, you can visit his beautiful artisanal distillery on West Main Street. George Garvin Brown created and bottled Old Forester, the first bottled bourbon here on Whiskey Row uh, around uh, 1870, and today is a city we are restoring Whiskey Row with some wonderful preservation-minded private partners, and Old Forester will once again live on Whiskey Row, opening in 2017, so there's a reason to come back. Enough about bourbon. Uh, you all may have heard we also have the largest collection of Victorian homes anywhere in our wonderful old Louisville Preservation District. If you haven't made it there, do make it a point to get there and enjoy that in the St. James Court area. We also are now said to have the largest collection of shotgun houses anywhere. Uh, New Orleans and Louisville have a lot of that architecture. And I think you probably also know we're home to other firsts, including uh, the Happy Birthday song was written here in Louisville. So we hope you will find extra time while you are here to explore the many uh, historic features of our city. Enjoy what we have preserved. Uh, Louisville is a city that has spent a lot of, of time, energy, and passion to preserve what we have. It's part of what makes us an authentic city and gives you an incredible quality of place and sense of place while you are here. And so we thank you for what you do every day to preserve history in your communities, at the local level, at the state level and for teaching future generations about the importance of our history so that they too can appreciate it. So enjoy your conference. If there's anything the city can do for you, you've got wonderful organizers, please have them reach out and we hope to see you back this way soon. Thank you. Good morning. I am John Dichtel, the new president and CEO of ASLH. Thank you. And I'm here to add my welcome to all of you to this conference, our 75th. And I am part of a uh, bit of pomp and circumstance here you've seen that I would like to point out began with literal fanfare. The definition of the word fanfare is a trumpet call to, uh, to action, and, and you saw that. Um, so with lots of pop and circumstance, ballyhoo, hullabaloo, uh, we all gather here. This is exciting. And it's my job also to introduce the chair of our program committee, Kyle McCoy, who is going to introduce our speaker for today. And Kyle is the vice president uh, for education and exhibitions at the Indiana Historical Society. Uh, formerly, she was at the Arizona Historical Society, and as chair of the program committee, which is a very large group, 40-some people, 45, I think, um, she knows quite a bit about unnatural acts, um, <laughs> which is a reference to our speaker, if you didn't get it. Um, so, Kyle. He had me worried there about those unnatural acts. I was like, oh my God, my secret's out. <laughs> so I just wanted to extend my welcome to Louisville also to everybody and to make sure that everybody understands that um, this host committee was so fabulous with setting everything up. I mean, Scott Alvey. Scott Alvey and his staff did the majority of the heavy lifting for this and really came through on the evening events and um, 
scheduling the program. So I thank you personally because this, you were the one that made this really big. So thank you, Scott. So we are here in Louisville, and um, I was so taken with the city's motto, it is possible. And I thought, my goodness, what a great city motto. It's so positive, it's so visionary, it's looking forward, and you know, with a great anticipation. And um, not every city takes that look. And so one of the reasons that we chose this theme, the power of possibility, is because of how this place was settled. When settlers came upon the falls of the Ohio, um, it became a barrier for their further travel west. I'm certain that many of the people looked upon this challenge as an insurmountable crisis, lost their minds and didn't know what to do. Some of them, others have been just paralyzed with, oh my God, there's a decision we have to make here. What are we going to do? This was not in our plans. But there were those others that saw this crisis as an opportunity to reset and refocus. And they decided to stay here and settle this place. Kent Whitworth and Scott Alvey keep telling me when life handed them lemons, they made bourbon. <laughs> and I said, how, how optimistic is that, right? So, so you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with the history field? And in my opinion, the power of possibility has everything to do with our field today. We are all still facing some challenges of all shapes and sizes, and the only thing we can really control is how we react to those challenges. We have to check our perspective as to how to react to this. Our survival depends on our perspective and how we react to these challenges. Uh, we, we cannot just sit back and let these challenges form the barriers that are going to keep us in our place where we are. We have to do something and move forward uh, by answering the tough question, you know, what do we, can we, or should we? What is the impact we should have on the public and society? And we need to emerge from our challenges more valuable than we were when we first were confronted with these challenges. So this is one reason why I'm excited that Sam Weinberg is here to share his thoughts with us today. I believe we are pretty much all familiar with his book, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts. His book was definitely a turning point in my career when I was a new professional coming in to the education portion of the history field. His emphasis on students' participation in their own learning process, coupled with the teaching uh, history through the historian's process, um, made perfect sense with me, struck a chord with me, and it still does. And I'm not telling anybody anything they don't already know about the technological age that we're living in. Um, now, more than ever, people are demanding action in their own learning. They can find, you know, Google and find topics on every answer, every topic with just a few clicks of a mouse or a swish of the finger. So it's up to us then to find out, well, then what kind of information are they getting and how are they processing it? Um, just looking at Facebook sometimes, I see some of my colleagues placing things up there. Did you know this? And I'm like, yeah, she died four years ago. You know, there's no way to really um, help people understand the critical thinking process until we help them as historians. This is what we do. We know how to do this. 
So um, Tim Grove also quoted Sam Weinberg in our program today, saying history teaches us a way to make choices, to balance options, to tell stories, and to become uneasy when necessary about those stories that we tell. Our challenge is to answer the question, should public historians be doing more to explain the historical process? I think we can all agree that we can do this, and Tim's going to be hosting a, a session Friday morning to follow up with this. So if you want to get into this conversation, join Tim on Friday morning about this. But I think that's really one of the most important things we have to face right now is not do we do this, can we do this, but how do we do this? So now you want to hear from Sam, don't you? I know. Sam Weinberg is the Margaret Jacks Professor of Education and History at Stanford University. Educated at Brown and Berkeley, he earned his doctorate in psychological studies and education from Stanford and an honorary doctorate from Umeå University in Sweden. Weinberg's interdisciplinary scholarship sits at the crossroads of three distinct fields, the psychology of learning, history, and education. His writing has appeared in such diverse outlets as Cognitive Science, Journal of American History, Smithsonian Magazine, and the Los Angeles Times. As director of the Stanford History Education Group, his Reading Like a Historian curriculum is used in all 50 states and 127 countries. It has been downloaded more than two million times. In 2002, his book, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts, Charting the Future and Teaching the Past, won the Frederick W. Ness Award from the Association of American Colleges and Universities. It's for work that makes the most important contribution to the improvement of liberal education and understanding liberal arts. And it is my great honor to introduce a man who truly impacted my life's work, Sam Weinberg. Just going to check the technology. <laughs> it was wise I did. It is such an honor for me to be here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. For those of you who brought their children, I can tell you there will be no unnatural acts performed on stage today. The, the point I want to begin with today is one that might initially sound a little bit peculiar for those of you who might have run across some of the kinds of things that I've said or done over the past 
too many years. The claim that I want to make today is that historical thinking is not about history. Let me begin by telling you about a story that occurred in October 2010. The Washington Post broke a story about a fourth grade textbook in Virginia called Our Virginia Past and Present. The book contains a short chapter on the role of African Americans in the Civil War. Now, if you are a movie aficionado as I am and you've seen Glory, and the stories of the Massachusetts 54th and the 180,000 African Americans who served the Union forces by the end of the war constituting over 10% of the Union forces, then you, might be, then you might expect that that's what this short section would focus on. But that's not what it does. Instead, our Virginia past and present presents Virginia fourth graders with little known historical information. Thousands of Southern blacks fought in the Confederate ranks, including two black battalions under the command of Stonewall Jackson. Now, depending on how you do the math, and there's some dispute about it, two battalions, it could be configured as 10 regiments, somewhere around 10,000 African-American soldiers in uniform being given weapons to fight for the Confederates under General Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson. Now, this had to be at the height of the war, because as you recall, Jackson died from friendly fire by his own troops on May 10, 1863. Now, it's long been known that the Confederate Army forced slaves, impressed them into service as cooks and laborers who provided backup support for the war. We also know the Sari state of free blacks who somehow found themselves in states that had seceded from the Union, they too were impressed into service as cooks and laborers and haulers. We can even go on Google and look for images and we'll find things like this. African Americans wearing the Confederate gray and clearly there were cases where there were slaves who accompanied their masters into battle some of whom were even given arms to carry unofficially. We know of dozens of cases like this, maybe all told somewhere around 50 to 60. But that is not what we're talking about. We are talking about the formal mustering of 10,000 black soldiers under Jackson alone, and by extension, thousands of others under other generals who had been put in uniform trained in weaponry, and taught to fight for the South, all at a time when the North was still debating the issue of enlisting black troops. What is the evidence for these claims? Now, the only document that we have from the Confederacy about impressing African-American soldiers into service was in the waning days of the war in a last-ditch effort three weeks before Appomattox. If thousands of blacks were already bearing arms for the Confederacy, why did the South have to enact General Orders 14 on March 23, 1865, where 
it's so controversial, you'll see even down at the bottom, it has a clause of this is only to go on in extraordinary circumstances. So then the question before us is, where would our Virginia, past and present, find the backing for a claim that is rejected out of hand by any reputable Civil War historian we can think of, James McPherson, Bruce Levine, David Blight, practically any, everyone that we might name. There is no documentation for these claims, no records of them, none of the sources we would expect where we would find mention of them have mention. This claim for a claim that so contravenes common sense and I might hazard human nature. Now, when the author of this book, Joy Massoff, was asked about her claim, she said, as controversial as it is, I stand by what I write. I am a fairly respected writer. <laughs> when her publisher, Five Pounds Press, was contacted and asked about the author's source, they sent the Washington Post reporter the links that Joy Massoff used to anchor her claims. Each link led to a particular website. And ultimately, it was this website. When Miss Massoff was asked how she did her work, how she did her research, she said, I do my research on the internet. If you're not familiar with this group, they are a patriotic, historical, and educational institution founded in 1896, as you can read. Now, our first inclination might be to criticize Joy Massoff and to have a little chuckle at her expense. And it is particularly problematic that this claim ended up in a textbook that fifth graders would read. But I want to strike a serious note and suggest for a second that Miss Massoff is not that different from you and me. We live in an age in which going to the library is about turning on our laptops and making sure that we have a decent wireless connection. And being on the web and searching for information is about being in a fundamentally new relationship to information from the way that anyone who learned how to do research before the web, which means all of us above 40, learned how to do research. Back in the pre-web days, libraries, Archives were places of authority. Going to the library meant being inducted into a, an esoteric order where we learned to decipher ancient texts like the Reader's Guide to Periodic Literature. <laughs> well, it was never the case that just because something was printed meant that it was true we often ceded authority to established publishers, 
to verify information, to make sure that what we read was true, to make sure that it had gone through several rounds of criticism before it reached our eyes, before a book was published, distributed, and ended up on a library shelf. And only a very small percentage of us was, were actually authors. The great majority of us were consumers of information that other people had, pr had produced. The reality that we inhabit, that our, that our children inhabit, that our students inhabit, that those kids who come to field trips on our institutions inhabit is a very, very different reality. The web has fundamentally undermined authority. You need no one's permission to create a website. You need no paper signed to put up a YouTube video. You need no one's stamp of approval to put up this picture that was taken up on Instagram. You can tweet, and many of you probably are right this moment. You needed no permission from your teacher to do it. If you want to practice historiography, you do not need a license. Go ahead. You are an author. And what determines whether you will go viral is not the stamp of approval from some university Mandarin, but the digital mob. Now, think back to the claims that our president was born in Kenya. This was a claim that was embraced by many prominent people. <laughs> and there on YouTube was an actual tape, a tape of Sarah Obama, the president's grandmother, being interviewed by an American interviewer about the circumstances of our president's birth. So I wanted to do an experiment with a generation that is often called digital natives. I was asked to give a talk at a very highly regarded independent school, and they had assembled their sophomore and junior classes, over 100 students. And when I asked them how many of them had heard the claim that President Obama had been born in Kenya, they looked at me as if, as if I was some kind of conspiracy theorist kook. But then, being a former high school teacher, I appealed to adolescent bravado. I assume, I said, that if you are so certain, then you all must have examined the evidence. You've actually heard the tape of Sarah Obama, the president's paternal grandmother, talking about being at her, at her grandson's birth. And they, I said, please raise your hand if you've heard this tape. No one raised their hand. I said, so you are already judging a claim without evaluating the evidence? And then, for those of you who deal with teenagers, you know this one always works. You say, do you have an open mind or a closed mind? <laughs> so then I played this tape for them, and I asked that you follow along. Uh, could I ask her? Uh, could I ask her about his, uh, his 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 actual birthplace? I would like to see his birthplace when I when I come to Kenya in December. Um, 
Was she, was she present when he was was she present when he was born in Kenya? was present at his birth and she has never left her native Kenya. Someone is lying here. Either an 86-year-old woman or the President of the United States. Now, with a little bit of prompting, these juniors and seniors started to motivate some questions with a little bit of scaffolding, but they, they wanted to know, was this was the tape doctored? I said, no, the tape has been examined forensically. It was not doctored. They wanted to know what comes before and after the tape. Actually, a lovely historical question. What's the context for this particular snippet? One student said, is the translation into English correct? Which is a very astute question because Sarah Obama was speaking Swahili and that's not her native language. She's a Luau and that is her native language. So the question is, what happens to this word present as it moves from Luau to, to Swahili and then into English? Does it mean she was physically present or that she heard of her, of her grandson's birth? So all of these questions were really interesting. But then I waited. And I said, what other kinds of questions would we ask here? And what these students were not so good at was asking, where does this information come from? Who is this interviewer? Bishop Ron McRae, the head bishop of the Anabaptist Church of North America. How would we find out who he is? What motivates him? How did this tape come to be? These are the kinds of questions that stumped my digital natives, who have grown up with the web, screens and searches from the time they had baby teeth and were still in diapers, go on an airplane and watch toddlers with screens in front of them. According to digital futurists like Mark Prensky, the web for these kids is like water for fish. For them, swimming in bits and bites is the most natural thing in the world. But I want to suggest to you that it is one thing to be a digital native and quite another to be digitally intelligent. What does it mean to be an intelligent citizen in a digital age? Long before the internet, Thomas Jefferson argued for the wisdom of the yeoman farmer. The farmer who tilled the land, but also to be an effective citizen had to be literate in order to make thoughtful judgments. A farmer who could think, discern, and come to reasoned conclusions in the face of conflicting information. Today, when practically everything has changed about how we get our information, what does informed citizenship mean? The most critical question that our age faces is not how to find information. Google has done a pretty good job with that. We're bombarded with it. But whether that information once found 
should be believed. And according to some recent studies about our ability to do that, our young people are not doing so well. So here is a, uh, the cover of a recent survey done by the Survey Research uh, Center at the University of Chicago, which looked at where our millennials get their news, and it will be no surprise to you that the source that was named, I think it's 72%, more than any other source by far, was from their Facebook feed. Second was from their Twitter feed. In the most extensive research to date that has really looked at what do young people, in this case, what do college sophomores do when they go on the web to evaluate information, this work is done, was done by Professor Esther Hargitay at Northwestern University. She engaged dozens of college students, her total sample was well over 100, with a study of how they determine the trustworthiness of information that they encounter on the web. Now she gave them a series of tasks. Let me read to you the kind of questions they had to solve. You are at home in the middle of the summer. A friend calls you frantically on Friday at midnight. The condom broke while she was with her boyfriend. What can she do to prevent pregnancy? So you can see these are not, not inconsequential questions. These are the kinds of things you can imagine that have meaning for today's college students. The main finding of Hargitay's work was that students seeded to Google questions of credibility. If something was high up in a Google search, it was more credible than if something lower in a Google search. A very scary thing, for instance, if you were to put in your keywords, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, or crematoria in Auschwitz. A very chilling thought of thinking that the higher something up is on Google, the more credible it is. During the searches, or actually in an interview that she gave before students started searching, she asked them, what is your approach to finding information on the web? What do you generally do? In 10% of the cases, students said, well, I check the credentials of the author when I go to a web page to see if that person has credibility. I vet that information. But in the actual, in the actual conduct of what students did when they were sitting in front of the computer, no student in her sample actually followed through by evaluating who the author was and what that author's credentials were for saying what he or she said. The first thing that historical study teaches us, and this is, I believe, a deep lesson for how we use the web as citizens, is that there is no such thing as free-floating information. Information comes from somewhere. And if you think I'm exaggerating about the gravity of the situation, let me tell you about an incident that happened about a year ago in Southern California in a community just outside of San Bernardino, Rialto, California. And it is not an incident about students, it is actually an incident about 
an assignment put together by their middle school teachers. Now, in May 2014, teachers in Rialto, California, a community of about 100,000 near San Bernardino, gave their eighth graders a written exam inspired by the new Common Core state standards. Rialto teachers went on the internet and called what they believed were credible documents, each one presenting a different view. The issue under debate was the Holocaust. Students were told to review these credible texts and to write an essay arguing whether the Holocaust was real or whether it was a hoax concocted by world Jewry for, and I quote, political and monetary gain. One of these credible documents, which ultimately came from a .org website, so be careful, Here's a copy of the assignment, by the way. One of these credible documents comes from a .org site, claims that the diary, uh, the diary of Anne Frank was a, was a fake, was a forgery, that piles of corpses that you see in photographs were actually murdered Germans, not Jews, and that there are compelling reasons why the so-called Holocaust never happened. Dozens of eighth graders found this document the most compelling. As one wrote, the Holocaust is one big propaganda tool. The euthanasia program did not just persecute Jews. There was never any cyanide residue found. There was not enough time to kill six million Jews. And all records from the Holocaust were dreamed up after the war. All these facts add up to prove how big of a hoax the Holocaust is. when an investigative reporter for the San Bernardino Sun, a guy by the name of Bo Yarborough, contacted the school district, they said that this type of essay was an exception, that students, students were not taken in. But through California's version of the Freedom of Information Act, he obtained the essays that eighth graders wrote, and dozens and dozens and dozens of middle school students became Holocaust deniers through this assignment. Here's another one. Now, when this story got out through Bo Yarborough's reporting, it was picked up by the LA Times and then the New York Times and then Slate and then any kind of news outlet you can imagine. When this got out, the school board held an emergency meeting and decided that all eighth graders and eighth grade teachers would take a visit to the Simon Wiesenthal Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles and receive extensive sensitivity training 
to ensure that an incident like this never happens again. In my humble opinion, this is a fundamental and gross misdiagnosis of the problem. In reading about what happened, I've come to the conclusion that I do not think that these teachers were racists or prejudiced or bigoted or benighted or living in sin. I do not think that they need mandatory sensitivity training. I think that they, like their students and like us, are living in an age where technological changes of how information is disseminated and distributed far outpaces our ability to keep up with it. Throw in for high school teachers and middle school teachers the common core and that the fact that a few years ago we were telling teachers to write state standards on the board and quiz students with multiple choice standardized tests, and now we tell them that you have to evaluate multiple texts and make intertextual connections and decide whether the information is true with often little or no professional development for teachers, and you have the recipe for a perfect storm in Rialto, California. And so that's where we're at. The tools we have invented are handling us rather than us handling them. And when we try to pause and gather our thoughts and ask, how in the world do we get up to speed? What are the most essential skills our students need to deal with this reality that they face? What are the two or three things that I can give them tomorrow that might prevent another Rialto, California or another our Virginia? Then when we go on the web, we find 48-page PDF documents produced by Microsoft Bing with thousands of suggestions and at least another thousand classroom activities. And we all know what happens with those kinds of resources if we've ever spent a moment in a high school or middle school classroom. They serve to capture the free-floating dust in the room in the hallway. If we had all of the time in the world, I would say, great, let's undergo these curricula with thousands of activities. That would be wonderful if we had a year and a half to deal with this problem. But our situation is dire. We're like the guy in the emergency room who's already hemorrhaging, and the nurse shows us a booklet with 37 different possibilities for how to stop the bleeding with five dozen variations of how to do the procedure. By the time we figure it out, we're gone. Or, to use another metaphor, we're all in the same boat. So bear with me. This may be a review for some of you or new to some. Um, if this is something that's old hat for you, please give some of your colleagues a little bit of slack because it might not be old hat for them. So I want to begin with a, a little exercise with you. I want you, and this is participatory, so you've got to help me out here. I want you to imagine that you're a carpenter, and I am sending you to a work site where there will be plenty of wood there, but you are not told what you're going to build. And you can only bring two tools, not power tools, hand-operated tools. 
two tools that will be as flexible as any two tools that you can choose. What will be in your toolbox? So let's start with just good old carpentry. What are two tools that you're going to bring? Can I hear some answers? A saw, a hammer, a screwdriver, nails, that might be helpful. All right, so we could come up with, if we did this as a survey, we could come up with three or four and we could narrow it down to two and there would be a great deal of consensus about it. Let me ask you this question. If we're thinking about our digital toolbox and we're going to come up with two tools that every student and every middle school teacher will have, what will those two tools be and why? All right, so to, to, uh, to make this a little bit more concrete, let's imagine that we are doing a, a, a web quest with our students and we're searching for Adolf Hitler. And you see, with a search for Adolf Hitler on Google, and again, it changes, but when I did this, this is what was number five, the Hitler Historical Museum. And if we know that students assess credibility by how far up this one's pretty high up, and moreover, the URL is not a .com site, which we, in our guidebooks for students, we tell students are bad. It is a .org site. And then our students press on it and read the snippet below about what this website is. And let me read it to you. The teaching of history should convey only facts and be free from political motives, personal opinions, biases, propaganda, and other common tactics of distortion. Every claim that is made about history should be accompanied by documentation proving its basis. Only responsible scholarship and teaching should be permitted. Those who intend to support particular political interests and agendas should have their biased historical interpretations criticized for lacking proof. Can we sign on to this? I happen to think this is, if we could, if we aspire to it and could actually attain it, I think it's not bad. So what exactly is the Adolf Hitler Museum? I recently uh, had to give a talk to a group of college students in a survey U.S. history class. And it was in a large hall, a large kind of auditorium, one of those old-style amphitheaters where the, the seats go up and the lecture's down in a pit. I felt I was in an orchestra pit. I looked up and all I saw were kind of baseball hats turned three-quarters to the side and a lot of laptops that were open. And so I showed the students this thing and I, I said, um, I said, you all got your laptops open. So before you click anything, and, and keep your, I want to see hands. I made them show me their hands, like in a, a holdup. Before the hands go on the keyboard, I want to know who among you can in one click tell me who owns this site? My digital, crooked, baseball hat-wearing college students all with their laptops out probably on Facebook, Twitter, and ESPN as I was talking, all of a sudden, 
I said, within one click, you natives, tell me who owns the Adolf Hitler Museum? Who owns this domain? Now, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but let me just see, by a show of hands, with one click, putting one set of search words into a search bar, who feels 99% sure they could tell me who owns this site? Please raise your hand. Is the question unclear? <laughs> Maybe this is an unnatural act. This is my equivalent of your saw and your screwdriver and your hammer. Who is the author? Very simple. Whois.com. And in this particular instance, whois.com brings you to not some big organization, but a Gmail account. You naively thought it's gmail.com with no address, no P.O. box, nothing. There might be a P.O. box. Actually, well, yes, there was a P.O. box down at the bottom. It goes, when you do Google, locate where you actually, it's like in this nondescript strip mall with a, a, a mail store. Then I continued, because I was on a roll. And I said, okay, what's my screwdriver? Or what's my saw? Or what's my set of nails? And I referenced, I referenced that question that my mother used to ask me when I was about 17. And I had already gotten my learner's permit and I could start to drive myself. And I had the keys to the car. And I took the keys to the car and my mother, before I was going out, she'd say, where are you going? And I said, out. <laughs> and she said, out with whom? And I said, people. <laughs> and my mother, as many of you, I'm sure, who raised teenagers, had the next question, which people? Which people? Now, why did my mother ask me that question? She asked me that question because we are known by who we associate with. We are known by our posse. In a digital frame, we are known by the digital pack that we go along with, that we hang with, that links to us. So I asked my students, who links to the Adolf Hitler Historical Museum? Tell me, with one click, who links to this museum? I waited. I'm not going to ask you, because I, I'm not. <laughs> who are your friends? A very simple Google trick, or a free website that has, is uh, actually owned by Amazon, Alexa, but has a, a, a paid version that wants you to subscribe, will very quickly, with one click, tell you everybody who links to the page and why, in this particular instance, the main people who link are the pages of the Aryan storefront. The question that we're facing right now, that I'm facing as a researcher of how people come to vet and think about information, 
historical information, but also the kind of information about social and political issues. The places that we are at right now are trying to understand what is expertise? What is it that people who are truly expert at discerning those things that are true and those things that are false in a digital environment, what do they do that some of the rest of us might not do? And can we, can we learn from those people in order to develop the kinds of teaching strategies and ways of thinking about digital information that might be part of the warp and woof of our educational process? And so the question we are faced with is, who is an expert? And so initially, and when, when we started to do this work, we created a set of digital tasks about a variety of different issues on the web. So here's one of them, uh, the website of the American College of Pediatricians. And in our sample, we began with historians, uh, librarians, a variety of different kinds of people. And we gave them these tasks. And in this, for this particular website, there is an article on uh, bullying. And when historians look at this article, they, they source it. They, they look down at the bottom and see in this particular instance that this article on bullying has a variety of references, many of them to a journal, Pediatrics. And in a variety of different cases, um, in a variety of different cases, uh, they will look and read the article, four or five minutes, and the question will be, what is this group, the American College of Pediatrics? And so my question as a researcher is, what is the difference between someone who, within 13 seconds, knows exactly what this organization is versus someone who eventually, after floundering for four or five minutes, which is typically not what we do on the web. Usually our searches, based on what ordinary people do in searches, are within a minute. But who, what is the difference between people who zoom in in 10 seconds and people who at the end of four minutes are sort of right, but just getting warm? Well, many of the historians that I gave this to read this article, and after four or five minutes, they were basically able to say, well, maybe this group is not the same as the American Academy of Pediatrics. But what do people who are able to come to that conclusion within 10 seconds, what do they do? And who are these people? Well, it's been an act of, the, the biggest act of generosity that I have ever experienced as an empirical social science and th scientist in 30 years is when I called up the fact checkers to some of our most important publications, the Times, the New Yorker, Politico. No one as yet has turned me down. And so we've sat with these people. And what do they do when they see this particular site and don't know about it? They do precisely what all of our guidebooks for high school students and college students say do not do. What they do in order to get immediately oriented within 10 seconds is they go to this site. Wikipedia, which you can see right from the start, will give you an initial orientation of what the American College of Pediatricians is all about. Had those teachers 
had those teachers in Rialto, California, rather than obeying all the guidebooks that Wikipedia is straight from the pen, the digital pen of Satan, (laughs) had they spent 10 seconds looking up the group BibleBelievers.org, this is what they would have found. I'm not suggesting that Wikipedia is the answer in any way to our problems. I am suggesting that the way that we think about information and becoming thoughtful on the web is profoundly flawed. And that we must rethink the kinds of tools and ways of thinking about information that we dispense to those people who pass through our portals. Now, if things were not bad enough, many of us grew up in a different time. I grew up in a time where something called a daily newspaper appeared on my doorsteps. The next time a group of high school students passed through your doors, ask them how many of them hold a physical newspaper in their hand every day. You will have many of them who say, I've never, other than using it for the cat litter, held a physical newspaper. When we grew up, we thought there were certain rules. When we read a newspaper, the news appeared on page one. There was an editorial page where opinions lived. And between editorial and advertising, as journalists called it, they actually referred it to this as a separation of church and state. But then a funny thing happened to the daily news, the internet. And half of the people who worked as journalists in 2002 no longer do so. The Baltimore Post, the Tucson Citizen, the Cincinnati Post, the Miami News, the Albuquerque Tribune, the the Honolulu Advertiser, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, all rest in peace. Even the top names are struggling. The New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post. They are turning to something called native advertising. Here is the Atlantic with an article that promotes Scientology, but up at the top it has a tiny little disclaimer, sponsored content. But everything else looks like a regular news story. The New York Times, where is it expanding its staff? In a department, this is misinformation, in a department that makes in-house branded content. And so, when you read that story, that review, that criticism of Orange is the New Black, you might not have known that it was sponsored by the makers of Orange is the New Black. We, in our work, and here it's a, it's a, a moment for me to give a shout out to our funders, both the Robert McCormick Foundation of Chicago and the Spencer Foundation of Chicago. Our funders 
are asking us to think about can young people distinguish on the web between that which is paid for and that which isn't. And so we did just a very simple task with a group of 7th and 8th graders across a wide variety of different kinds of schools. We gave them this web page from Slate. And we asked, which one is a news story and which one is an ad? And we showed them this particular one. Computers could make healthy eating more palatable. And it says sponsored content. But what do students write? sponsored content. Our students have no clue what sponsored content means. As some of you might know, uh, my colleagues and I have a free digital curriculum that we distribute that focuses on ways of reading that we call reading like a historian, where we pose legitimate historical questions for students and teachers and combine them with primary sources that in many ways address these questions from different perspectives. The, the curriculum, to our amazement, has been downloaded over two million times. And it has been adap adapted. Uh, for if, is there anybody from LA here? Great. It has been ad adapted, adopted by LAUSD, and it is the curriculum that's taught in the nation's second largest school district in their social studies classrooms. But it's time for me here in front of you, this august body that's assembled today, to come clean about the real intention of the Reading Like a Historian curriculum. It has nothing to do with preparing students to be historians. If anything, if our curriculum has anything to do with career preparation, it is not the profession of historian, but the vocation of citizen that is our focus. Before our very eyes, reading has moved from print to screen. Do that little exercise. Ask your, the high school students that you encounter when they last read a physical paper. Back in the analog Stone Age, we could rely on three major news outlets to save us from error. Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Brian Williams, well, maybe not Brian Williams. <laughs> what once fell on the shoulders of editors, fact checkers, and experts now falls on the shoulders of each and every one of us. But there's a problem with this new situation. 
the ill-informed hold just as much power in the ballot box as the well-informed. And the future of the republic hangs in the balance. I believe that reliable information is to civic intelligence what clean air and clean water are to public health. Long before the internet, long before blogs, long before Instagram, long before Twitter, James Madison understood this in 1822. Without the skills to evaluate information, democracy would be rendered impotent. Madison wrote, popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance and a people who hope to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power that knowledge gives. But let me end my words today with the words of another president. Our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, who wrote, the problem with quotes on the internet <laughs> is that it is difficult to verify their authenticity. So uh, because we had all the fanfare at the beginning, as John pointed out, we're going to hold any formal questions because there are other things. But uh, Sam will be here. I don't see Bethany. I'm begging her to come get, whisk him off stage and take him because we know you're going to buy books and get them signed because that's the time when we all buy books. And we know the one thing you need on your shelf is yet another book. So uh, we're insisting on that. It's like the gift shop thing. You got to pay before you go out. And before we do this, so Bethany Hawkins, anywhere. Okay. Um, we'll, get, we'll get Sam where he needs to be. Uh, before we do this, we were extremely remiss in not acknowledging our sponsor uh, of, of Dr. Weinberg's talk, History IT. Could you all, on our behalf, please give them a little bit of a delayed <laughs> nod? We are, we are very, very grateful for all our sponsors. That's who allows these tremendous uh, speakers to come, obviously speaking our language and something that we live with. And I kind of knew you were going where you were going with number 16. That was perfect. So thank you very much, everybody. Uh, and Sam will be outside signing books, and we know you're going to buy those. So you got him? Thank you.